firehouse and you'll see you've learned so many new skills and the best feeling in the world is if you're building a tiny house, you're renovating a house or anything in life in general, stepping back and looking at it and going, wow, look what I created, look what I made. It's it's just a great feeling. Rent vesting was my way into the market. I knew I could get a loan for a property worth about $300,000 when I was looking back in 2014. There were no properties that affordable in the areas that I wanted to live in. So I had to look at areas that I could afford to buy and then I would ultimately rent the property to a tenant. Then eventually I'd rent closer to the city where I wanted to live. There's a couple of reasons this worked for me. After living in my property for the first year, I moved back into a share house. My rent in the share house was about $900 a month, much less than the cost of my mortgage. Rent vesting helped me to build equity in my property and hopefully take my next step over time. So let's look at some really simple numbers here. If the amount that you owe on your loan is $200,000, but the property is worth $400,000, you have $200,000 worth of equity. It's technically just a number on a spreadsheet, but the bank understands that if you had to sell your property, you would make a profit. They therefore might give you a loan based on that equity, which you could use to say renovate or even buy a second property. I want to introduce you to 23-year-old Tash, who has an investment property in Perth that's rented to tenants while she travels. Not only are they paying down her mortgage, the rent on the property brings in more than the cost of the mortgage. Tash Etman, at 23, you have done some incredible things with money, um, already entering the property market and investing in shares. Uh, I know your Instagram followers know you as Tash Invests. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks so much for having me. This is super exciting. So tell me, Tash, a little bit about the beginning of your uh, your property journey. Uh, you, you've been really quite diligent um, in your early 20s, already saving for property and buying, I believe, in 2020. Why is this so important to you? It was kind of always a goal. I think it was because my parents were property investors. So it was always a thing when I was younger. I was going to save, grow up and buy a house. So early last year during COVID, actually, um, I purchased an apartment, which was very cool. Um, but yeah, it was always just kind of a goal I had, which I guess a lot of Australians have too. Absolutely. But I think a lot of people in their early 20s think it's sort of outside, um, you know, the realms of possibility for them. Um, tell me a little bit about um, what you were looking for. I understand you bought an apartment, which would, I guess, be considered entry level. Um, what was it about that property that, that you were drawn to? Um, it was brand new. So I really like modern things and I was going to live in it for the year. So I loved that it was brand new. I loved that there was no garden because I cannot garden to save my life. It was low maintenance. Um, I love to travel and I've moved now as well. So low maintenance, easy and new. Um, and it just worked out really well. It's like five minutes from the beach, um, like 20 minutes from the city. It's in such a nice spot. Um, so I just saw it and was like, I love it. It's perfect. And I understand it's sort of in the Perth area. Can you tell me a little bit about the purchase price and the, the deposit that you had saved to um, to make that purchase? Yeah, so it was only, only it was $295,000 last year, which is amazing. So I had about 70, 80 grand in cash. So with the first home buyer's 10K, um, I only had to put down $52,000 for my 20%, which worked out really well for me. So I still had savings afterwards. Um, yeah, it was great. Pretty impressive that you already had those kinds of funds. Can you tell me a little bit about how you saved that money? Um, I've always liked traveling. So when I first finished school, I got three different like casual and part-time jobs and I was traveling heaps, but I got into a habit of saving lots, traveling for a month, coming back and then working huge hours. 
Um, so I kind of just built up the savings habit. And thankfully, because of my parents, um, I always knew that you kind of had to have savings for the future anyway. Um, and then when COVID hit, I got heaps of refunds for all my trips that got cancelled. Um, so I had money sitting over. I had a full-time job as well. And I ended up doing uni part-time, which allowed me to work full-time. So kind of how I ended up saving so much. And tell me a little bit about the work that you were doing. I understand that you were working in occupational therapy. Is that right? That's what I'm studying. So my first few jobs were random ones. I worked at Specsavers. I was a swimming teacher. I worked at H&M. Um, but my recent, I was a support worker, my recent job, um, I was a support worker for the last three, four years. Um, so initially I started in the community and then I started doing overnight residential shifts in a group home. So it's kind of related, but not quite occupational therapy. Um, but I was really lucky. My job um, the year before I bought the apartment, I was getting paid 71K a year full time, plus the ability to do overtime. So as a uni job, that worked out so well. Definitely not your average uni job, but you obviously no. um, were working very hard between the full time work and the study as well. Um, what advice can you give to young people who are perhaps studying, um, you know, they're looking at a bank account of, you know, zero or hovering just above zero and they're trying to build um, their savings to either get into the market or, or get into shares? I mean, do you have a strategy for, for saving? Um, I don't really have a set strategy anymore, but when I first started out, I'd always work backwards and I automated all of my savings and investments. Um, so I think the biggest thing is automate it and treat it like a bill. Don't treat it as optional. Um, set up different accounts, keep it out of sight. But I think just having that big long-term goal, if you're just saving for the sake of saving, you're not really going to get anywhere because you don't see the end of it. But if you're saving for a property or you're saving for a holiday and you have all of those plans in place, it makes it a lot easier. And if you take the emotion out of it and it's automatically transferred every week or every fortnight, it becomes a lot easier as well. But it is it is hard to just start and just put away those smaller bits because I know a lot of people look at my Instagram and be like, oh, I'm never going to be like that so quickly. But it didn't start like this straight away. Just start with your $10 a week or $20 a week and work from there. Tell me a little bit about what's happened since then. I understand you've moved out of the property and you're what uh, people would refer to as a rent vester, which means you have your investment property, but that also gives you the freedom to um, live where you want to live and, and travel. Tell me about what's happened for you in the last couple of months. Been a bit of a wild few months. Um, I took a casual job at a ski hotel. So I moved in, I moved home for a month in May um, just to rent my property out. And then I moved to New South Wales in June. Um, I've been here for a few months now, but the rental journey has been really fun, I guess. So my mortgage is 230 a week and I need about 300 a week to break even with strata fees and stuff like that. And my apartment's rented for $425 a week, which is super exciting. Um, but at the moment, I'm living in an Airbnb and I'm paying $150 a week um, to live here, which is absolutely incredible while I'm earning my $425 a week from my apartment in Perth. Um, and I'm in a little beach town now, which is absolutely amazing. Probably one of the really nice places to be locked down. That's absolutely incredible. And I know that probably wasn't um, necessarily the plan for you after that ski job finished. Um, no, so tell not. me a little bit. <laughs> tell me a little bit about the benefits of um, of having a, you know a tenant in your property and and being able to effectively spend less on the cost of living than you would if you were living in it. Um, it's incredible. I barely. It's been so stress-free. So I have a property manager who sorts out everything. I get a nice monthly statement and I get a nice deposit in my bank account at the end of every month. Um, so it's been really cool. I'm living month by month at the moment and moving around 
which is so fun. And then I get a little bit of money at the end of the day as well, which is really cool. Um, it's been quite a fun adventure. Tell me about um, the transition to becoming a, a landlord. Um, what were the challenges in um, renting out the property, if there were any, or any mistakes that you might have made along the way? Um, I found a property manager that I absolutely loved and she quit halfway through, um, which is a bit interesting. So I didn't have any like communication with the property managers for a few weeks, which is a little bit annoying because I had a timeline in my head. Um, I was doing eight weeks of prac, so I wasn't getting paid at that time either. Um, so I ended up delaying it, getting it rented for two months. So I found a new property manager. Um, but once it was all sorted, it was great. Um, and obviously I had my emergency funds, so I could be a bit flexible, which was good. The biggest lesson from that is just being flexible with your plan because I think in my head I had this very strict timeline of I'm going to put it up it'll be rented in a month I'll move out I'll spend two months at my parents and then I'll move over to New South Wales and it'll all be great uh, with the property manager and there was also a few lockdowns thrown in there as well it took a lot longer to rent than I thought um, and initially I was like oh, I'll only live in it for six months but I didn't end up moving out until May so if you're planning on renting maybe having a little bit more flexibility in that too and having emergency funds in place. Having that buffer between moving out and getting the tenant in is, is really important. Knowing that you might need to actually make a mortgage repayment while the property is empty is um, is something that's certainly worth considering. Now, I think it's interesting that you've made the choice to be a rent vester and, you know, not be an owner-occupier because that obviously gives you a lot more freedom in terms of the way that you live your life, um, but also having more money to put into shares, which I know you're um, pretty passionate about. Can you tell me a little bit about how you, I guess, distribute your funds to ensure that, um, you know, not only is your mortgage taken care of, but you're also investing elsewhere? Mm -hmm. um, so I pay my mortgage weekly at the moment. So that gets taken out every week. And then at the end of the month, I get the payment um, that's got all of the fees and council rates and everything taken out already. Um, so that at the end of the month is usually around 1600 once the fees have been removed, which is pretty great. Um, so it's kind of like my bonus money. So I have an emergency funds for property things because um, different strata levies and stuff pop up all the time. And then um, anything extra, I just add to my investing fund as well. So in the end, I usually end up investing maybe a few hundred dollars from that. Um, but yeah, I have like an investing plan on the side anyway, so that just goes into that as well. And for people who may not know what strata fees are, can you can you explain um, what that involves specifically if yes. you're buying an apartment? I think there might be like a WA thing in terms of naming it, because I think other states call them body corp. Because I had people really confused the first time I spoke about them. Um, but it's just the fees of owning an apartment, so it's all the common area things. So the car park, the electric gate, the intercoms and stuff like that and then it also pays for the strata manager so normally you have council rates and water rates but then you also have strata fees or body corp on top of that for an apartment what advice can you give to people who are looking to go down the rent vesting path i think it's a great idea um you get fun tax benefits as well and like when you live in it i can tax deduct the interest on my mortgage which is great um and looking at it myself, I would, probably wouldn't pay four twenty five a week in rent, which is what my apartment can rent for. So if you can get something like that, it's great. Um, maybe don't find somewhere that you're really emotionally attached to. I think that was my issue initially because it was my first apartment and I was really excited about it. Um, so if you know it's going to be an investment property, kind of take the emotion out of it. But yeah, it's definitely a great idea if you want to move and want to live somewhere else. Don't just squash the idea of property if you don't want to live there for 30 years. Um, there's so much you can do with it. Yeah, it's, um, it's it's super impressive. And I think that's something that people need to consider when they're buying an investment property. As you've said, it can be really easy to get emotionally attached, but mm -hmm. um, it can be really powerful to run the numbers and work out where you're going to stand, whether you're either going to owe money on top of the tenant's addition or whether you're actually going to make some money out of it, which can be pretty powerful.
Yeah, I get a lot of messages of people being like, oh, I could never buy an apartment like that because I live in Sydney or Melbourne or something like that. So if you're purely buying an investment, maybe stepping out and having a look in other states could be an option as well. Because um, I know a lot of people just look at what they know, which is really important as well. But if you have the time to research other places, there are heaps of really good value properties in somewhere like Perth with really high rental yields. Um, so just doing a bit of research could be a fun tip as well. If you were going to be buying in another state that you didn't know, would you engage sort of a buyer's advocate or someone else to help you make that decision or would you do your own research? Um, definitely. I think I love, I've been following Emily Wallace recently. She looks incredible, but after seeing some stuff that she does, I think the next property I would buy would definitely be, would be using a buyer's advocate. I think mine accidentally worked out really well for me, which is great, but the research definitely wasn't there that could have been. So in the future, I'd love to have a buyer's advocate to help me with that. Tash is just amazingly driven um, and that's really paying off for her. Not only is she in the market, but rent vesting is giving her this amazing freedom to travel around while she's also making money from her investment. When you buy a small investment, your aim isn't necessarily to pay down a 30-year loan. It might be to maximise the equity and use it as a stepping stone to your next property. Carefully research suburbs and make sure you're choosing a location that will generate a good rental yield. Tash has showed us that it's possible to get a rental yield that's higher than the cost of the mortgage. Having an investment property can come with tax benefits, but there are also liabilities that you need to consider when you sell a property that isn't your principal residence. It's worth talking to an accountant if you're considering this path. There are other things to think about too, like having a budget in case it's not rented out immediately. If you don't have a tenant, you have to pay the mortgage as well as the cost of rent where you're living. Taking the traditional route and getting a full-time tenant in your property is one thing. Then there's buying an investment and putting it on accommodation platforms as a getaway. I want to introduce you to Brad, who bought a barn in Heathcote in regional Victoria. Yes, a barn, with his partner Jacob, and they turned it into an Airbnb. Brad, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Uh, I know that you and your partner, Jacob, um, have quite an extraordinary property story. Uh, You were living in East St Kilda, renting, and realised that it wasn't going to be feasible to buy where you wanted to live, so you started to look further afield. Tell me about the day that you went for a drive and stumbled across something pretty special. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. Um, It's an absolute pleasure, and do you know what? It has been a journey, I tell you, um, trying to get into the property market. Um, it was a struggle because being, you know, in mid-30s, not knowing if we can afford something here, we we really thought about what else could we do and and how could we get into the property market and, and wedge ourselves in there in a way that was both um, able for us to do so but also something that could potentially give us profit in the future. Um, and, you know, Jake and I are probably a little bit more creative with our thoughts. <laughs> so one day we were driving out to the country um, and we actually just went on a complete journey to places we had never been before um, and went north because we always normally go um, southeast um, when we go to the country. And we went north and went all, to all these different little towns and fell in love with the area, especially in the, around the Golden Valley um, and Bendigo and thought, you know, why are we stuck in the idea of having to own a house that we live in in the city? Why can't we think out of the box? Why can't we have something in the country? So you start looking around the country uh, and you stumble across a barn. 
Now, from what I understand, this barn was in no way, shape or form any kind of dwelling. Um, yeah. You know, it had exposed insulation. It was, you could have had it animals was, in there. It was a barn. <laughs> yeah. when we, so, <laughs> we were looking at properties and, um, you know, things on acreage that were a livable dwelling were still out of our price zone. You know, Jake um, is a cafe owner, so, you know, that in itself is hard to get a home loan. Um, so it's basically like having one income and then having a dependent. <laughs> Thanks, Jake. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> um, <laughs> I do love him, by the guys, for those who are listening. I do love him very much. Um, but it, it was um, something that just clicked to us and it um, was a barn with no floor, no insulation, a rickety uh, little fence in the middle that went up to a platform and we saw it and just saw potential and saw that it was an opportunity to create something interesting, something unique and something that was within both of our skill sets that, you know, we could lend on what we know um, to make something that other people might say is completely hideous, knock it down, don't even try it. Um, but we wanted to give it a go. You've touched there on um, both of your skill sets. And what I think is really interesting is Jake coming from a hospitality background and you coming from a fashion background, mm. um, you were able to then think about um, hospitality but in the respect of accommodation while yeah. you came at it from a styling perspective and have created this incredible, um, you know, really lovely oh, getaway <laughs> for people. Um was it always the plan to turn it into um, Airbnb accommodation? When we first got it, um, it was it was more so somewhere for us and our family to go. Um, but once we saw the journey that we were going on creatively and throughout the renovation process, we realised that it was possible for us to actually get a return on our investment and make this something that could be available to people. Um, and it was so unique and interesting that we, we thought, why, why wouldn't you? And, um, yeah, like, you know, Jake working in the in cafe industry and being in marketing previously before that, he is really good at project managing and he has a long line of um, builders in his family. His brother's a builder. His father was a builder. Um, so we really leaned in on those skills to make sure that we could, A, make it legal, Two, um, that we, it was stuff that we could do and afford ourselves. Um, and then I came up at it from a, a completely spasmed sparkle element um, to <laughs> try and make that rough sawn timber look um, pretty whitewashed and incredible, which, you know, I think it does. And I think buying in the country lends itself to not everything having to be 100% perfect. And I think that's the charm of having something like this is that it's all those imperfections that make it really beautiful. Well, you say there are imperfections, but for people who um, <laughs> haven't seen pictures of the barn on Instagram, um, and I've been lucky to uh, to visit the barn also, it is, you know, it is now whitewashed, it is beautifully yeah. styled, it is just the perfect country escape. But yeah. tell me, I'm sure it's not 
perfect having uh, an Airbnb when you both live and work in Melbourne. Tell me a little bit about the challenges in the early days of, of getting that set up. And if people are thinking about going down this path, what, what do they need to be aware of? Yeah, like for us, I think the struggle is definitely real when it comes to having that separation. You know, it is only, um, Heathcote's only an hour and 10 minutes away, but, um, you know, working and not being able to travel, especially now, um, in those first instances, you just need to make sure that you have a really, really good set of people um, in the area that you've spoken to, got got to known, um, whether they be cleaners or maintenance people that can go and check on the property for you um, or just to or people that you trust. I think having that baseline of people um, that are not necessarily on a payroll for you but um, that are helping you out in the beginning is really important. Um, and I think another thing to make sure that you don't do is go over your budgets um, and make sure that you're not overextending or or um, pushing yourself to an extreme based on what you think a return might be. But what do people need to be aware of in terms of those chunks of time where you haven't been able to have guests or, you yeah, know, like did, you, did you have a backup plan to manage that financially? But let's, let's talk before COVID first. Our backup plan is we always made sure that our occupancy that we were looking at um, for the year was no more than 45% so that we knew that we could bank on that. But the rest of the time, we were putting everything into the mortgage. We're still making sure that we have the cash flow there to support it. Um, and everything else is basically a cherry on the cake that you have as a nest egg for years to come. Otherwise, you're not setting it up as a proper business. And you know, things, things break, things need to be replaced. You need to always look at um, upspecking things. You know, um, we've had to replace a fire and a few other things, and and that all costs money. So you don't want to be, you know, scrimping and making sure that um, you've got something there to to utilize when you yeah, need that. Yeah, absolutely. And then of course you're paying cleaners. You've got um, the yeah. the the accommodation hosting platforms that are, yeah. you know, taking a percentage cut. So it, you know, it's not as straightforward as people necessarily think it is. No, the, the funniest, the funniest thing I always get um, told, especially by friends or even family members, like, oh, that's great. You get like 260 bucks a night. That's fantastic. And it's like, well, no, if you actually break it down in, in that you have cleaning costs, you have linen costs, you have the Airbnb fees that it all adds up and, you know, it can add up to probably, depending on who you're using, 35 40% of, of what people are paying is, is all in fees that are outbound. So you have to take all of that into consideration. Fortunately, you know, over the period of time that you've had the barn, um, you know, it has been um, successful and, and I'm mm. assuming the property has gone up in value. Is that, yeah. is that what's enabled you to take your next step and buy your second property, the Stonehouse? It is. Um, we... The thing that we really worked on is creating something unique, finding things that people have an interest to that's completely out of their normal their normal lives and, and out of their comfort zones that they can be intrigued by. And that's why I think the barn works so well because it is unique. Um, and that the success of that enabled us to have a property that really does um, look after itself now after years and years of of it, of it working, um, it does look after itself, which meant we can then look 
for a second property. So we went to one another favourite town of ours, Nagambi, which is a beautiful lakeside town, which is only half an hour away from Hickett. Um, we've just got to get the rest of the Golden Triangle in there and we'll be happy. <laughs> so watch, watch this space. We'll see what happens in a few years. Um, but we went to Nagambi and the Stone House is this beautiful property on top of a hill. And, again, um, it was probably double what we paid for the barn. Mind you, the, what we paid for the barn was teeny tiny. <laughs> it wasn't expensive. <laughs> well, um, we weren't buying a barn. So we're hope. not millionaires, guys. It was a barn <laughs> on a block of land. <laughs> That's all it was. Um, but this place, yeah, it's it's incredible. So it's on um, 14 acres, right on top of a hill overlooking the Golden Valley. And it was owned by this lovely little old lady who retired. And um, it basically was what was put on top of the hill back in the 1950s. It was exactly the same. So off-grid, um, a lot needed to be done to it. But, again, it was it was looking beyond what's visually in front of you and seeing that the bones are good. All it needs is for you to go in and make it beautiful for now and, and make it interesting and unique and you've got something with character in a beautiful setting and I think that's what's so beautiful about the country. Are you guys still renting? And if so, what's the plan for you in terms of your own personal living situation? Yeah, we're still renting and, you know, while we work in um, – the city will just continue to rent for us. Hopefully one day in 10 years I can look back and say, right, I don't have to have a full-time job anymore. I've got seven, 10 properties that are self-sufficient and I can earn a wage from them. You know, that's kind of the end goal that you want to have. That would be absolutely incredible just to move right? around from, from vacant <laughs> Airbnb to another. It'd be, pretty, it'd be pretty cool. That's that's like the end goal dream. But yeah, for now, for now we're still renting. Now I've still got a full time job. Jake still has the cafe, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. But um, yeah, it's it's not really a priority for us to um, make sure that the house that we live in is a house. What advice can you give to people who um, you know really want to enter the property market and like the idea of of what you've done and a need mm. to rent and and buy a lifestyle property. Is there any final advice you can give? My advice would definitely be do not overstretch, like I said before. Make sure you live within the means that you can afford yourself because if there is another pandemic, God, let's hope not, but, um, you know, we haven't had rent for nine months um, of the year, so you've got to be ready for that. Um, always make sure that you call on people that are, are good at construction, um, are good at styling because the one thing that you want is a property that's unique and people will just fall in love with and want to return to and always don't go for the most beautiful property because I tell you there's some damn good gems out there that are ugly and they should be given a chance. If people want to stay at the barn or stone house uh, where can they find them? Yeah, yeah, no, thanks so much, Nicole. It's been great. If you do want to stay at the barn, just check out at the barn Heathkit on Instagram or at the Stonehouse Nagambi. Very simple. <laughs> I completely agree with Brad. Sometimes people overlook properties that need a bit of love, but in my experience, if you've got a vision, the potential can be huge. But it's not as easy as you think. If you're considering taking this path, you need to factor in all of the costs and time associated with running an accommodation business. That said, solid demand and adding value through renovation work has enabled them to buy their second property. However, they do allow for periods of time when they have no income from their holiday rentals. This is a really important consideration. 
Next time, I want to look at whether all of the hassle of trying to crack the property market is worth it. I'll let you in on where I've ended up and introduce you to a woman who's overcome the most remarkable odds to buy a home. You won't want to miss it. The information in this podcast is provided for entertainment and educational purposes only. It is general in nature and does not apply specifically to your circumstances. If you're considering purchasing property, it's always best to speak to a licensed financial professional before making any decisions related to your goals.